Why does Michael Bay get to keep on making movies? Okay, so news, news. Let's 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 just launch into it. What's the news? Hello and welcome to episode thirty-two. <laughs> oh god, news. Um, there's a new tape here. Oh wow, really? A new tape here? <laughs> it's published in the Journal of Mammalogy by Mario Coswell about it's called Tapirus Cavallari. I did not expect that. Um, I think I put that we should briefly mention new theropods because a slew of new theropod dinosaurs have recently been published which are worthy of brief mention we can't stop talking about them for ages because we could do a whole show of theropods couldn't we but um so there's so late jurassic portugal seems to have had a pretty similar fauna to late jurassic the famous marginal formation late jurassic uh, assemblage of uh, the continental interior of the western united states and um uh, a new species of Torbosaurus has just been named in PLOS One by Christoph Hendricks and uh, is it Oliver Mateus? I can't type because it because you'll hear it on there. Um, yeah, yeah, we should say that we've got a bit of a technical problem. This is why da- Darren will sound different this time. Is that uh, the new laptop does not have a hole for the <laughs> microphone, so it's yeah. being recorded through the laptop microphone so touching the computer makes a loud noise and also it doesn't sound as good but yes so we hope to have that sorted by next episode just taken us 40 minutes to set up the recording for this so um yeah anyway and this species so torbosaurus which you know associated with the united states is now known from from europe as well from portugal and they've named this species this new species of torbosaurus torbosaurus gurnii after james gurney the artist and um um obviously the, the, the as as with so many dinosaurs this, the materials not we're not talking about like a skeleton we're talking about like a maxilla and a few other bits of bones and um so most of the paper is about the, the anatomy and the nomenclature of maxillae but naming a dinosaur after james gurney uh, i don't know i don't know how i feel about that one <laughs> so this is this is i've done that i've done that thing before here where i'll get my I'll get my shovel out dig myself dig oh here we go dig 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 right I think James Gurney's a, a, a great artist, uh, does, you know, wonderful stuff, but I'm not, I don't really quite get the point of naming a dinosaur after him. Um, I don't know. You tend to have strong opinions on everything. What do you think well, about James Gurney? Well, why not? Why not what? Why not name a dinosaur after James Gurney? Fair enough. There we go. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's so many as long as I get one one day, that's fine. You, you won't. But Totally James Gurney like gave the world Dinotopia, which is all right. And what I'll do, good. right, is I'll pay you like five quid, and I'm yeah. sure you'll find something. Yeah, I'm always finding many things. Yeah. Oh, well, I wanted to play the Tetsu drinking game this time, so that's a negative opinion. So I'll drink that. Um, so new Torbosaurus named after James Gurney. Okay. Uh, I hope James Gurney's not a listener. Um, um, but I said nice things, right? We like, we do like his stuff. Just... I do. I think he's a really good artist. I don't get what your problem is. Okay, I forget. I don't have a problem. Um, this new, have you read about this new, uh, this new tyrannosaur from, um, is it Alaska? Nanook Saurus. 
a dwarf tyrannosaur from uh, the you know the high Arctic. Uh, <coughs> it's a juvenile. So, <laughs> described by Anthony Fiorito and Donald Tsiolkovsky again in Plos, everyone's favourite journal of choice at the moment. Um, Nenoxaurus, yeah, a, a dwarf um, tyrannosaur, and obviously they again not but we're not talking about complete skeletons here. We're talking about bits and pieces, the holotype. Um, people have always known. Well, people have known for a long time that there are tyrannosaurs of some kind up there in the the cool seasonal. Um, well, what would have been in the latest Cretaceous Arctic Circle and the Strictian, during the Strictian times. But this animal, adult length, they, they obviously say in the paper that they did establish that it, it is an adult based on the external uh, bone texture and so on. And adult length about six meters, which is, you know, like less than half of a, an adult Tyrannosaurus. So, um, really interesting. Adds to the diversity of Maastrichtian dinosaurs. But the interesting thing is that is that is this what you would expect given the things that people given these kind of rules that people predict about body size of animals in cooler and more northerly climates because there's this thing you've heard of this thing called bergman's rule yeah the idea that because body surface is proportionally smaller in in um large bodied animals that it's advantageous for animals to be bigger in cooler climates so therefore you should expect the most uh, I was going to say most northern, but yeah, most northern or southern ones are expected to be larger than, than ones from warmer climates. So people are saying, well, that isn't it a paradox that you've got like a dwarf tyrannosaur, a small tyrannosaur. But hang on, hang on. Is that even true? I mean, well, that's that's where I'm coming to. It's uh, not it's, true. <laughs> well, well, it's supposed to be true. And people always talk about polar bears and say, oh, aren't they really big? And Kodiak bears being one of the big brown bears. But I actually plan to do a Tetsu article on this because um, there's a paper by, I think it's by Valerius Geist, who works on mammals, particularly food mammals, called Bergman's Rule is Invalid. And the whole reason people came up with it in the first place is because they were actually studying um, uh, island endemic weird taxa and thinking that they were normal for cool climate ones, but they weren't normal because they were actually island giants. And in particular, they were looking at certain sets of uh, wolves and deer and so on that occur on some of the Canadian islands. So, well, well what's your point? I mean, you, do, you, do you have a a thing in that plight or whatever it's called? What? The, the well, I just, I mean, thinking about what animals come from where. Yeah, tropical yeah. animals, they're all tiny. And animals from the northern and southern hemispheres are huge? No. I mean, no, it's just on the face of it, stupid. It's, it's meant to be more subtle than that. It's meant to be that within a population, so like mice in Okay, India, but given the, the theory, in... but given the theory, why within a population? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think any of that makes sense. I think that's all just silly. And if you're going to say it, do a massive statistical analysis of every animal that you can. Well, then I'll believe you. People Looking at a few like things here or there, <laughs> eh, pff, bollocks! It's just silly. It's just stupid. It's dumb theorizing. Also, staying cool is a big problem, and being big helps you stay cool. Even though you've got a smaller surface area compared to your volume, because it's harder to shed heat. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, people have looked into this quite a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of work that's been done on Bergman. Stupid, in, uh, stupid work. Well, well, well. This is one, of, but this is one, of, this is one of those things. This is one of those areas where 
Now, I'm going to seem like a bit of a philistine for saying this. <laughs> Whoa, how weird. But um, um, it's one of those things where people come up with like like theory often based on you know principles of mathematics or physics and then apply it to the natural world and go, ha-ha, makes sense because pi squared equals three. And uh, whatever, doesn't. <laughs> but um, and it's and in actual fact, like the natural world, there are so many confounding variables on like the trajectory, you know, whatever's going to happen, evolution, and things like body size being hugely variable, and all these confounding factors. Um, it's <sighs> where are we? Out there? <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. Bergman's so right. so like, we've got a paradox based on a stupid rule that no one really agrees with. It's all so <laughs> dumb. Why did you bring thought, this up, Darren? It makes me angry it, that intelligent I people it, are talking about stupid but stuff. But it's like about this. numbers. I thought it would be the exact kind of rule you would like and normally the kind of rule that I hate because <laughs> because people go, ah, but, but the, the, the third power rule and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but animals aren't just squares. They're, they're <sighs> things that have sexual lives and social lives and are, con- and are re- reliant on food sources and the shape of the environment and the size. Also, of- I, don't, I don't think it's based on a poor understanding of animal physiology. I don't think that's how animals physiologically work. I think this is silly. I don't, as I say, I just think it's silly. But anyway, let's move uh, on because we don't we, have time. We don't have time to yeah, go okay. into silliness and all this. We could do a whole show on Bergman's rule, clearly. Um, so another new theropod, the Hell Creek Scenignated Oviraptorosaur, Anzu Wiley. Wiley, Wiley, I don't know, Anzu, Anzu. Have you seen this? Yes, this Anzu, the, yeah. Anzu, it's been, this animal has been kicking around for literally decades, and uh, many people are familiar with um, museum mounts of the specimen. Uh, a guy called Mike Trevor would make some really nice um, 3D mounts of skeletal reconstruction to this thing. Scott Harmon's reconstructed it. It's in Greg Ball's dinosaur book. Um, so yeah, finally has a name. But um, have you looked at the reconstructions online? I mentioned these on, I think, Twitter today. Because, um, yeah, the reconstructions, everyone's showing, everyone's showing basically a shrink rat. Uh, it's got feathers, don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's like, you look at how much feathering they've put on it. We've got, um, um, I, th- I think all the reconstructions I've seen that accompany this this recent paper. Again, this paper was in Plus One. It's uh, Matt Lamanna, Hans Zeus, and other people. Um, it's given scaly fingers. It has feathers on the arms, but the feathers don't encompass the hands. And Jamie Hedden and I were talking about this, and Jamie said, "Well, you know, maybe maybe there's a, there's a case to be made for some of these manoraptorans having having weird hands as it gets feathering." And, I kind of, I do kind of see the point there. Yeah, maybe they're not all the same, but on the other hand, at the moment, do we, I think we have to assume they are all the same because all the manoraptorans that we've got feathers of, without exception, all of them have extensive feathering on, on the hands going all the way to the end of the second finger. Which oviraptorosaurs do we have feathered hands? All Cordyptrix. And Cordyptrix has got these long feathers entirely. Mm covering the hand, as is the case for other manoraptors. Also, I'd make the point that these artists that are doing this aren't doing this because they're thinking, well, I'm going to br- shake it up a little bit. They're doing it because they don't know. Because for some reason, oh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> so many of these artists, they just don't know what they're doing. I don't understand why that's the case. Yeah, I'll pass my shovel to you this time, because that's, 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 that's pretty much what I would have said. Also, uh, it reminds 
well, it just drives me of, crazy. But <laughs> well, well, well. That, so yeah, I think we're thinking along the same lines then, because that's 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 what I was thinking. It's 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 similar. It reminds me of comments people people have made about Greg Paul's recent dinosaurs, or even Greg Paul's dinosaurs from Predator Dinosaurs of World, nineteen eighty eight. They're they're dinosaurs with a thin veneer of feathers on them. They're not dinosaurs reconstructed with the actual true extent of the feathering as we now understand it. Mm. So, um, and credit to Andrea Cow. Uh, I'll say Chow. Take drink. Mispronunciation. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, but um, and now there, there's. In in the discussion that the headmaster and I were having about about hands, right? There's there's a paper, a really interesting paper published by Phil Center. Phil Center has published several neat papers on 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 theropod hand mobility and posture and stuff. And he proposed that seniors naked over acrosaurs, crossmotes and kin may have actually used the uh, the second ungle of the, of the second finger, the ungle of the second finger even. To as a stabbing tool, that they could like, maybe reach into crevices and like hook out big grubs or little mammals or, or whatever. And and I thought at the time you published this paper a few years ago. If that's true, if this animal is using its finger as like a probing tool into cavities, then you would have to have a toe like um, it would have to have an unusual lack of feathering on the mm. finger. That's true. And given that we know that all other manoraptors have feathering to the ends of the second finger you're going to have to talk about something completely novel so he didn't discuss that in the paper i, I can't remember why well since i read it so um anyway anzu so that's torbosaurus gurnii nanooksaurus anzu new tape here mentioned that um now this is cool there's a there's i don't when i when i like check out recent literature i don't just crawl through plus one you know but that's where all the <laughs> papers go <laughs> there's a, a really cool paper oh we've done on theropods done on mesozoic theropods anyway there's a cool paper by gregory shaw and colleagues published a couple of days ago uh we're talking on the 28th of march today on the 26th on diving behavior in marine mammals what would you say i'm going to assume you haven't read this what's the deepest diving marine mammal i would have gone for sperm whale i would think that's a totally wise guess and most people would go for sperm whale and most books and Guinness Book of Records and all that stuff talk about sperm whales diving down to what 1.6 kilometers or something ridiculous. That is actually out of date. It has been out of date since 2010 because that record has been beaten by elephant seals, which the record dive for an elephant seal is 2.3 kilometers. Wow. A seal that can dive down to 2.3 kilometers and stay down for two hours. What? I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Well, that record has now been beaten by, citations for the win, uh, Cuvier's Beaked Whale, which this new paper by Shaw and colleagues, uh, it's, it's like loads of data on, on the, the diving behavior of these whales and, and average dive length and average dive depth, really, really cool stuff. Uh, but they record a new record dive of 2.9 kilometers 2,992 meters an animal that dives down nearly three kilometers in the ocean that is staggering and the longest dive was 137 minutes which is about two and a quarter hours so two and a quarter hours nearly three kilometers down i'm, I'm just wow that's just awesome it's um, pretty amazing considering like it's obvious there's lots of deep sea critters but the the 
the um the range there you know three kilometers of range that's that's incredible i mean i i should think that there's not very many fish that do that you know mm. things well, tend to live more in a in a strata don't they in the ocean well there's yeah there's there's loads of things loads of planktonic organisms that that migrate vertically on a on a daily yeah. basis come up to the surface at night in the dark but obviously these animals are doing this like well as i said over two hours they're not doing it over 24 hours yeah. so um so that that's cool and there's also something of great interest to me. There's a paper in PNAS, or PNAS as we like to call it, by Vicky Thompson and colleagues concerning the ongoing debate about the uh, history of chickens in the Pacific. So there's been this, this is, a, this is a big thing that's gotten a lot of, if you know anything about the world of chickens, um, this has been a, a major source of debate over the past five years. The history of um uh, chickens across the across the Pacific, and whether whether Polynesian people actually got to South America, and whether they took chickens to South America, because um, some some people that came from Spain and Portugal in like 15th century got to South America and found chickens, and these chickens were really similar to chickens not on the Atlantic side but on the Pacific side, and it was like oh my god, people actually may have taken chickens all the way from Asia across the Pacific to get to the Pacific seaboard of South America, and then obviously they migrated populations of people took, took chickens all the way to the, the Atlantic side of South America. So that has been a key bit of evidence for this, like, did Polynesians actually get to South America argument? The chickens tracking the history of people. Some, some research groups did genetics on these chickens and they found that, oh my God, yes, these South American chickens are closest to Asian ones. And then other people studied them and said, no, nah, you got it completely wrong. They're European chickens that were bought by other people from Iberia and the ones on the Pacific side have actually been taken by people to the east, not not sorry to the west, not in the easterly direction. And this newest paper by Thompson and colleagues, what do they say? They do not find any support for the view that the South American chickens are of Polynesian origin. They do, however, um, show that Polynesian people did get chickens all the way out, way out into like. Um, uh, well, beyond Micronesia, uh, I'm not going to. I need to look at the paper, and I can't do that because I'll tap annoyingly on the keyboard. But um, yeah, it's, it's the latest paper in this fascinating exchange. <laughs> which, uh, which if, if you, disappointing if, result, though, right? Disappointing. It's well, not nearly so interesting that way. That, that's true, but but that's that's not how we think about science, is it? So we don't we don't go for the sexy results. We go for that Neil deGrasse Tyson said recently. That's how I it? think it's about like... science. It's much, more, <laughs> it's much more exciting when it's surprising. That, well, that's true, but then the, the, the quote is the, the thing about science is true whether you believe in it or not, right? So, uh, yes. Um, so, um, the all your yesterdays thing. Yeah, we've got we to just... crack on. That was a we... that was a long, long, oh. long thing. That wasn't even on your little rundown here. I don't know why well, you send me these things. Well, <laughs> well if, if you would just let me get away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, all your yesterday's thing. Yeah, I haven't really looked at this very carefully. I have to admit. So you you, you go ahead and and talk about it briefly. Right. Well, very very briefly. Um. Jacob Vinter and colleagues have just published a paper in Nature on a new taxon of 
Now, this is not tetrapods. We're talking about like stem arthropods. Can you believe it's come to this? <laughs> <laughs> There's a new Placodan paper out, by the way. <laughs> Christ. Um, Binter and colleagues describe a new animalocarid. So, you know, animalocarid, the weird Cambrian predator with the feeding appendages and the pineapple ring mouth and stuff. Everyone's familiar with Animalocarus. Um, they've discovered a new Animalocarus from the early Cambrian of Greenland, which they call, I can't read my own handwriting, I think it's Timesiocarus. And they reckon it's a suspension feeder. It's got long, flexible feeding appendages with like particularly long, um, kind of soft, uh, like uh, needly arm things coming off the appendages, and they think it was using a, a sweet net feeding style of um, of grabbing armfuls of uh, planktonic bits and pieces. And all your yesterdays, John Miseros invented for all your yesterdays a totally speculative suspension feeding animalocarid, which he called Cetiocarus. Uh, that may be a typo for Cetiocarus. It's obviously meant to be whale shrimp type thing and basically he predicted the discovery of Timesiocarus, this new real life one and Vinter and colleagues know this and they have mentioned it in there's a little nature online video they've done and they actually even include a picture they include a picture of Cetiocarus and they recognize a new clade of suspension feeding animalocarids and they've made them part of this speculative one from all your yesterday they call them cto cards so how cool is that a discovery an, an idea in all your yesterdays actually preempts a genuine scientific uh thing excellent <clears throat> okay um right so uh yeah oh uh your book you no we'll do that at the end we'll do that at the end huh the, your new book well it's just out suggested agenda it says mm. news from John and Darren. Yeah. Can we do that? No, oh, you, just, you just blew all that out of the water with half an hour of theropod talk. Oh, yeah, new papers. And that was, well, I don't have these new papers, lots of new theropods <laughs> need to. Oh, yeah, and, and another. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> these are meant to be in order. We're meant to do them in order. <laughs> oh, dear, what a mess. Okay, so, yeah, you've got a new book out Building T Rex. Uh, Build the T-Rex. Build the T-Rex. But it's the funny thing is it's not new. It was published it was published in August twenty thirteen. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. the, the point is that I've You heard seen, it here first, folks. I, yeah, I, I saw it in a bookshop uh in I think I was in Oxford or something a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, Oh yeah, my book. I haven't seen that one yet. And um isn't that just great publishers? I'm a great and uh, so I emailed them and said, Can I actually see my book please? And uh, so Build the T-Rex, it's a children's book, and it's got like some introductory stuff on dinosaur anatomy and diversity, some kind of strange computer-generated pictures. And then the idea is, you see this box section, there's like a, a sort of a skeleton in there that you're meant to put together. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, a, a you're selling that. <laughs> build the T-Rex. Well, it might be nice for kids. I don't know. It's all right. My children are sort of either too young or too old to be interested in it. But um, a book I've been working on for months have just finished. The Dawling Kindersley, one of those Dawling Kindersley dinosaur things. Um, still plugging away at the cryptozoological. I mean, that's kind of 
I just haven't had time to. Yep. Okay. Uh, we've got a Kickstarter video. Oh yeah. Do what? Do you want to talk about that? Why not? Go on then. Um. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I thought you. Either you put it in. I thought you had like a thing <laughs> because, to say about it. Because well, because people would have. Those, okay, our friends will have seen these hilarious little images of us kicking yeah. the crap out of each other and, <laughs> and posing with giant rabbits on our lap and smoking giant. What do you call the smoking thing? You're smoking. It's a bong, actually. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yes, weird pictures of us in in strange dress and lots of questions about what what kind of a movie are you making exactly? <laughs> we should say they're all scenes from a Kickstarter video that we're putting together. Yes, uh, so yeah, I'm working on a. We're thinking of doing. We are going to do a Kickstarter for um a book about dinosaur life appearance. Um, so <laughs> I'm putting together the video for that. Uh, well, we both are. Although I'm editing it, I guess. Yes. So we <laughs> decided that since neither of us are particularly gifted um, or professional filmmakers, we uh, <laughs> decided to go for rather more silly than than um, slick. It'll <laughs> uh, be good. It'll yeah. be great. It'll be great. Uh, do you want to say anything about the Kickstarter? Um, I can't think of anything really that we need to say about it, apart from the fact that it's happening and that yeah. we will try and drum up some interest. Um, yeah, yeah, well, stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, transcripts. Oh, we now have three transcripts. You're kidding. Right. So, <laughs> right. so, so to anybody who's been paying attention to what we say in the podcast. John's been asking people repeatedly, please, please write transcripts, write down word for word everything that we say, because we really need this information so that we don't repeat ourselves in the future. That's a major bugbear of John's. And, um, <laughs> and to our amazement, uh, who is this person? They deserve great accolade. Uh, Mark the Fish. Mark the Fish, if that is his real name, Mark the Fish has actually transcribed word for word <laughs> three the episodes first, now three, three episodes. episodes yeah the first three episodes i am stunned so yes stunned. that's pretty good i mean oh geez i really have to put them up online in the um in the show notes for those first three but yes well, just wow no, um, thank you to mark the fish yeah, thank you. Uh, um, does this serve any? You know, I mean, I, I was—I <laughs> don't think it was something I was entirely serious about. But <laughs> I, does it serve any function or any purpose? Or you know, what can you actually do with it? You can sit down and read search it. it. You, like. you can search it. So yeah. you can say, "When did Darren and John talk about such and such?" You search for the transcripts. You can find the episode, and then you can go and listen to it. And you can avoid. Um, uh, horrible um, uh, plot holes and uh, sort of continuity errors and stuff. Like like in episode 27, we couldn't get married if we'd already gotten married in episode 3, that kind of thing. Because you'd know, because you'd check. Not that we are going to get married. I'm referring to... <laughs> That's you know, very soon, too. Uh, episode 27. I don't, think my, I don't think our divorces will come through in time. <laughs> you know, in Friends, in Friends, Ross got married twice and they like, 
No, he got married loads of times or divorced or something. And it was like, they completely forgot. I was like, hold on, didn't you know that that already happened? And, and uh, don't know what I'm talking about. I don't remember that. That's because they didn't have transcripts. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. Because yeah, they that's didn't why, know yeah. their history. Because yeah. I always think as, as, as like a TV series gets increasingly complex and people have to, there must be uh, some things that just don't care. But no, like, I think lots of television shows, the fans care, the writers don't care. Yeah. Especially comedy shows. I just don't even think that matters. When there's a when there's like a a show which is much more plot focused, I think it does start to matter. But comedies, situation comedies, no, who cares? No, I don't like yeah, the Simpsons has only been going for twenty five years. Oh, what I said about Simpsons Lego is true, by the way. We just got the new Lego catalogue. It's got Simpsons Lego on it. Does it? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, what are you doing? You're taking this off tangent now. Okay. Well, forget that for a second. F you. F you. Follow up. F you, John. F you. <laughs> so, uh, transcripts I've written down. Video I've written down. Dinosaur Life Appearance I've written down. Now, do you remember. You don't need to run through the thing every time. Got to keep track of these things. I'm um, keeping track. Right. Do you remember? I forget. I forget how we came to this subject. Oh, it was because it was because of the discussion about stupidity in animals. Um, yes. We were talking about, or I was talking about the the famous idiots versus the lions um, yeah. movie. Now, on this matter, to begin with, like that's something that was something that I trawled up from the back of my mind, and it's a video that I actually saw several years ago, and just remembered, oh, isn't it funny that it's called Idiot versus Lions, and this man dies. But on recollection, maybe I should have been a little bit more respectful if someone really was eaten alive by lions, you know. So, sorry to him. But, and, um, but there's a... Hang on, hang on. he's dead, isn't he? He's dead, but nevertheless... Okay, so sorry to his relatives. Should have been a bit more respectful. But um, apologies to whoever brought this to my attention, because I, I can't go through the Facebook comments right now. But... Um, the, the the man concerned was called Pitt Dernitz and the footage that I saw and I've relocated it online it's from a 1975 television series called Savage Man Savage Beast which <laughs> originally was I believe an Italian TV series, it's also been incorporated into a, a compilation movie thing called Traces of Death <laughs> As you might guess from these titles, this may not be the world's most authoritative, reliable source when it comes to uh, human, non-human conflict. And um, watching the video again, you know how often when you watch something again and you've seen it a couple of years earlier, it's not doesn't match exactly what you remember. Your, your memory is not, you know, totally reliable. Memory's ultra unreliable, of course. Memories are carved in, in wax, not stone, as they say. Um, I had forgotten how dodgy the video is. I remember it as being uh, quite plausibly realistic. But if you watch it again, the way it's cut is really suspicious. It's uh -huh. kind of these very sharp, um, like, what do you call, what do you call like a real obvious major chop where it's like something's going to happen and then all of a sudden something comes in the way, you know, real kind of big chops that, that just make it look somewhat unrealistic and, and the bits when the lions are actually eating a corpse and like the person's limbs are moving around and stuff you don't ever get to actually properly see whether that's really a person and in view of this 
in view of the, the you know where this was broadcast, uh, the the way it was used for the sensational TV series, the the way it's cut and the, the look of it, some people do think that it's a that it's a, a hoax or a fake or whatever or a reenactment of some form. And there's actually been a little bit of discussion with uh, in the, the the TV thing I saw. Um, it started with a disclaimer saying that um, some people say this is totally fake, and then other people have checked it out and they say no, it's totally genuine. And so the bottom answer is that we, you know, we, we don't actually know whether it's real or not. So uh, so me saying that it's oh, have you seen that video of the mega team alone? <laughs> um, well, I shouldn't have said that. And um, <laughs> no, but it turns out it's okay because it was fake, <laughs> and it might be fake anyway. So. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's good. That all worked out. That worked out for everybody. Um, yeah. Except for you. And um, is there any other follow-up? Everything uh, else was perfect? Uh, there's loads of other stuff, but I, I just can't remember what it is now. Oh, okay. Didn't, didn't we know. don't really... Yeah, we should move on. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, shall we do cash for questions? We should. As long as cash we for questions. Talk. Cash for questions! Cash for questions, questions, questions. <laughs> we should have stated the rules of the drinking game to start with. Can you like make sure you have those to hand? Darren what? pronounces someone's the drinking game that Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have the Michael, rules up here. That Michael Creasy came up with. Darren pronounces someone's <laughs> names wrong. Name wrong. Take a drink. John expresses a negative opinion on the movie. Um John, have you seen the Avengers? No. Oh, I'm taking a drink. <laughs> um, and there's other, yeah. So I get less. Just Christ, stick to the agenda. Carry yeah. on talking, John. Cash for questions. Okay, I'm going to start with the short. We've got two questions here. Only two this week. You know, people should get in their cash for questions. Um, one of them's incredibly long, uh, which I'll probably read out. But wow. Anyway, I'm going to read out the short one first. <clears throat> okay. So this is from Aaron Wells. I believe we've oh, had several questions from Aaron before. Aaron, flammable tetrapod Wells. Yep. Any update on flightless bats since he last wrote about them in 2012, Darren? Ah, um, interesting subject. Because no, there is no. Well, no, there isn't really any. Um, I can't remember what what did I write about them. Is it is that about speculative fictional flightless bats? Or I, I don't I don't remember I don't remember what it's about. But um, the only thing the only thing sorry it's the drink not trust me. The, the only thing that I would um, say that may be new on that subject is of course whenever anyone discusses the possibility of flightlessness in bats they discuss mystacinids, um, the um, uh, whiskered bats of New Zealand, um, famous for um being they're not flightless they're quite good flyers but they are able to furl up their wing membranes particularly tightly and they do a lot more there's a whole load about to do like a lot of terrestrial activity you know vampires not a bad example but um they're particularly proficient on the ground to the extent where they even like burrow among leaf litter and 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 go through little tunnels in rotten wood and all that sort of stuff and feed on terrestrial things like parasitic plants growing on the roots of trees and carrion even um and stuff like that and so when people talk about flightless bats they say oh these mystacinids from new zealand 
they are bats on the edge of flightlessness or could it be they are evolved from towards flightlessness in actual fact no it's just that they are doing a lot of terrestrial stuff um but in recent years and of course the fact they're on new zealand as well is goes hand in hand with this because people think do we have a bat here that's like edging towards flightlessness and it's on new zealand which is the kind of place where you'd expect bats to be flightless because of uh, lack of terrestrial predators we now know that, that that lack of terrestrial predators isn't wholly true because there were terrestrial um uh, mammals there at least until the miocene but um um the whole idea that my stassinids are uniquely uh, un unique to new zealand is, is no longer accurate because their fossils are now known from australia as well and the the newest thing on these bats published this year um is that basically new skeletal evidence from these uh, australian mystacinids shows that they had all the special features that we associate with the mystacinids of new zealand so all those weird features about all, all those huge features about like terrestrial foraging and stuff they're not unique to the new zealand ones they're present in the ones in australia as well hmm. so um it is interesting that there aren't flightless bats i do find that quite you would expect evolution to be messier, wouldn't you? You would expect to find one or two. Um, and I'm wondering why that is. What's the... Is it that they've got a bunch of uh, adaptions which are difficult to back out of? Well, that's, I can't really that... imagine why you couldn't just sort of do the reverse evolution, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. that, 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 is, that is the popular explanation, the fact that, that due to wing membranes coupling together forelimbs and hind limbs tightly in bats that they somehow couldn't decouple them but, but, but of course, the problem with any idea like that is of course evolution can hypothetically hypothetically evolution can get around any problem can't it because you can always evolve some naughty that allows you to get away from a certain situation then there's the fact that the idea that that there's basically too much competition from existing yeah. terrestrial mammals and also birds bats are Bats do, I think you can make a very good case that bats are substantially constrained by the diversity of birds. And as long as there are birds doing stuff, bats can't do it because they can't compete as well. Well, in daytime conditions, they cannot compete that well against birds. They're outcompeted by birds. This may be to do with thermoregulation because bats are nowhere near as good as, you know, coping in warmth, uh, sunlight as birds are. Um, but also, uh, bats are heavily predated upon by by um, birds. Owls and hawks are significant predators of bats uh, in in faunas where the two occur together. So people have kind of mentioned those sorts of things. There, but there is also, you know, we can't say for sure that there aren't flightless bats. I mean, there, we don't know of any flightless bats, but it's still possible that there are some and we haven't found them yet uh, in the fossil record because. There's a, an amazing fossil record for bats. There's crap loads of the things, and a huge number of them are based only on jaws, which of course is like one of the best bits of bats identified: jaws and teeth. The in the the problem with the adaptions being difficult to back out of the you know the coupling and that sort of stuff is the the problem is that they got there in the first place, right? So there yeah. is a series of transitions, adaptive transitions. That presumably you could just run pretty much in reverse. Um, 
so I, d I don't buy that as a as an explanation the thing that could be true is that most of those a lot of those transitions are actually not particularly useful a lot of the time which might explain why we don't have a lot there are certainly a lot more fully flighted animals than there are partially gliding ones aren't there mm, yeah there so are. maybe that sort of intermediate is not as adaptive you know, there's not as many things to do in that um, with that sort of yes. uh, functional yeah. morphology. So yeah, that is true. That is true. The, the active, active flyers massively outnumber gliders, but there are still a huge number of gliders. I mean, indeed. yeah, there's gliding rodents belonging to like four or five or six or seven different lineages, depending on which phylogeny you like. But um, uh, another argument that you could use here is an Evo Devo one because you know how embryo bats. An embryonic bat like grows stupid, crazy, giant webbed hands. So the idea, so like if that's kind of like a thing that bats are locked into, again, I mean, I, I see, I, I just, I appreciate and agree with your argument. It's like why couldn't you like evolve backwards out of that? But um, but yeah, there's this idea that once things are like kind of locked into a certain developmental pathway, if you're like a bat form with like half a wing, you're kind of not going to be able to have a competitive edge against fully flying uh, bats and mammals that are well adapted for gliding by other means so yeah um, but yeah, i guess there's you'd still make an argument okay but you can be less flighted you're starting to move more into hmm. gliding but basically you're spending a lot of time scampering around in trees or whatever or yeah leaves, yeah. I don't know. yeah yeah um Please. Oh, cakes, bats, bats, cakes, yeah, yeah, cakes, yeah, <laughs> cake bats. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the cake is a lie. Um, um yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's not, there wasn't, there's no update, so we couldn't really answer that one for Aaron, could we? No, no. Well, we did answer. So the answer is no, but we talked about like this bats no. anyway. Yes, and uh, there's the whole speculative fiction aspect because you know when you think about flightless bats. Uh, is he referring to the article I wrote this about the, the basically the ones from speculative fiction? So Dougal Dixon's flightless bats and the um, the, the, the future predator from Primeval and a couple of other things. Um, yeah, there's the news there is that um, I think some of you know that I did a long interview with Dougal Dixon. Um, God, it was months ago now. It was like seven or eight months ago now. And, um, I will be publishing that on Tetsu fairly soon. Um, um, yeah, and then that, that involves talking about the background to Arthur Man and uh, the new dinosaurs and his other projects. So um, spec more speculatives will already to come on Tetsu real soon. I also need to do another article on hypothetical proto-bats because this is something I'm really interested in, the fact that um, in the mainstream technical literature, there's many cases where where people have, you know, published ideas about and, and published illustrations of hypothetical intermediaries that are missing from the fossil record. And in the history of bat research, there's actually quite a lot going on for somewhere between five and ten uh, different published um the reconstructions of you know what 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 would a what would a, an imaginary like you know proto bat look like and a lot of bat experts have have uh, yeah done this written about those things I yeah. think I think that's cool it's like 
And as soon as it kind of becomes, because this, the very first time I ever published on speculative zoology on Pet Zoo, and we're talking about like early on in the history of the whole endeavor, you know, 2007 or 2006 or whatever, I did an article on Godzilla, the ideas about, you know, the biology of Godzilla. And, uh, and I was really not nervous, but I was a bit, should I really do this? When people sort of say, oh, why are you being silly when you should be writing about, you know, real animals? And no, people loved it. It was like the most popular thing I'd done by far at the time. And since then, I've learned that people love speculative zoology. Not only do like nerds, fanboys, fangirls, all that, all sci-fi people, all those people love it, but generally, technically inclined biologists, paleontologists, anyone interested in evolution, they love it as well. There's a huge interest in this. Uh, there always has been. So... So it's like, given that, given the fact that everyone interested in evolution is interested in speculative zoology, when it becomes the opposite of taboo, when it becomes kind of okay to say, hmm, this needs some, this needs some speculation. Let's, let's please have a go at drawing a hypothetical whatever. It's like, once, once there's like a tradition established, you can do this. People do do it. So in bats, loads of the bat books say, oh, what would a, what would a half bat look like? Well, this is what I think it would look like. But you look at other books, it's been done for pterosaurs. There are now three or four yeah. speculative proto-pterosaurs, right? But you can think of other groups where you kind of need to do the same thing because it gets them talking and discussing things. But there's other groups where people haven't done it because it's just not, I think, not part of the tradition. Um, it's especially true of flighted animals, isn't it? I think because there's also uh, the tradition of, you know, proto-avis and that sort of thing, Heilman and... Yeah, That's right. I think people find the transition from non-flighted to flighted really interesting. Yeah. Um, which it is, because we don't really have a clear picture, even now I think we don't have a particularly clear picture on what's, how it happened. And, uh, you know, with theropod dinosaurs, it appears to have been tremendously messy and complicated, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and theropods are the only one where we do have a lot of nice, in quotes, transitional fossils. But pterosaurs and bats, come on, where are they? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, okay, we should move on. Now, this this really long question from Christian Jewell here. Oh, with my reading out loud, this is going to be painful, everybody, but uh, we just have to battle on through it. So this is a follow-up question to the question last time about the series of photos of... Was it Corvids coming to the rescue of a baby magpie and whether that was really what was going on and that sort of stuff? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so he says, I agree that the explanations you give are most reasonable, but I would just like to hear <clears throat> what you think of the following idea. Humans are known to show parental behaviour towards members of other species which superficially look like or behave like human babies. This is usually big-eyed mammals such as dogs and rabbits. But our simple brains can even be fooled into caring for inanimate objects such as teddy bears. Um, <clears throat> this is very likely a side effect of being highly adapted to for taking care of our own offspring, but it's a behaviour that in itself has no selfish motive. My question is, should we not expect this of other animals with extensive parental care would occasionally display similar behaviour? A crow size, uh, sorry, a crow chick does superficially look like a magpie chick, so it would trigger parental behaviour in mag magpies, <clears throat> especially when it's helpless and in danger. 
Another possible example of this type of behaviour is the gentle and sometimes even protective way in which dolphins and orcas treat humans. To them, we may simply look like as cute puppies do to us. <laughs> After all, humans are adorably helpless and clumsy in the water, have disproportionately large heads, as do most mammal babies, completely lack any menacing features such as claws, horns or spikes that could spoil our overall cuteness. Okay, so the question is that if people do it, people find uh, baby animals, not of our own species, cute, and it does inspire in us um, parental behaviour, mm. what's wrong with thinking that this could be true of other um, animals that also care for their young. Um, yeah. Well, uh, what's the best way to answer it? Uh, yes. Ah, <laughs> 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 um, well, well, oh, that was cash for questions. <laughs> um, well, other animals do. Um, parental instincts, whatever. I mean by instincts, but you know, the parental urge does definitely apply to non-human animals because there are many cases of animals across the board adopting or looking after members of diverse other species. Hmm. Loads of cases of that. Yeah. So um so yes, I, I absolutely agree with, with pretty much everything what was the name again? Christian. Christian, I agree with everything Christian has just said there, so I'm not really sure I have much to add to it. For example, there's a there's loads of famous experiments where people have like taken away chicks and ducklings from chickens and ducks respectively, and then put them in the vicinity of other animals, and of course they they adopt them. There's a there's a famous photograph of a uh, a chicken, a mother hen, like looking after kittens. She's got kittens held under her wings. Because they look like little babies and they feel about right and they act like babies. Um, and ad adoptions of, um, well, it's adoptions of lot, lots, quite lots of other things, but I think in some cases they're parentally motivated. So there was a lioness recently who kept on stealing baby oryxes and looking after them for a while. And it didn't seem that her behavior was motivated by a predatory response. And she wasn't taking the baby oryxes as toys you know for anything it did seem to be a parental response of course it failed every single time because the other lions in the pride would eat them but um, um what is it with lions eating things we should do a special episode on that <laughs> uh, um and and i think that nah what was was the case actually that she had her own babies had died and therefore she'd um yeah and therefore she'd been inspired to go and find a, a, another baby um, and of course, there's now there's the the human wolf children, aren't they? And there's like the African monkey boy and stuff. There are cases which are somewhat controversial because some people say that um, it was never really properly demonstrated. Bear in mind these cases are often from decades ago, and yeah. they weren't yeah they weren't rigorously uh, you know documented. They're kind of anecdotal. But there's stories where. There's the two Indian girls that were supposed to have been raised by wolves. So people in wherever this was in India, I can't remember, but they, they, they saw these children, like, like toddlers, hanging out with wolf puppies in the forest. And due to their own, you know, what do you call it? The whole idea that people need to have an urge to look after other people, their sort of empathy. They thought we should really go and get those kids and, you know, bring them up as our own people. So, I've got the book about this. It's called The Wolf Children. 
um, they they went and rescued these these kids, these children from them from the wolf from the wolves when the, when the parent wolves were away, and they tried to raise them as like normal civilized people, um, and the 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 older girl died at like age 14 and never learned to talk. I think both of them learned, because originally they were walking on all fours, um, whereas the younger one did become a normal functioning member of human society, I think. And then there's a couple of other things like that. There's there's a, a boy that's supposed to have been raised by monkeys in Africa. There's a boy in the Middle East who was supposedly being looked after by gazelles. It's like yeah, a lot of these cases, it's very unclear from memory. I, I, long time since I've read about a lot of these things, but it's very unclear how long the children were with the animals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beforehand, yeah. so you know, <clears throat> it's often claimed that they were with the animals since they were like a little baby, and often that seems fairly unlikely. Um, but yeah, so these things are a bit hard to. Yeah, draw conclusions on. Well, but yeah, then, uh, we've things. already drawn the conclusion that animals will happily look after things. Oh, lots of animals will happily look after animals that aren't their own species. Definitely, Babies. and there's, there's like, if you and if you want something that's like concrete and is established, it's um in in birds where you have one bird doing a hostile takeover of the, you know you know how like whole nesting birds. The cavities in the trees are often in like fairly short supply. There's a lot of like battling to get the, get over them. So some birds, if they t if they take over a cavity and they find there's already babies in there, they'll kill them. They'll mm. chuck them out. Or there's a whole bunch of passerines and wrens and stuff that if they find a nest inside the cavity, they'll pile sticks on it <laughs> until they can't remember it. So it's like, yep, can't hear the chirping anymore. That's that sort of, now I'll start my own family. But there's others, there's some um, cockatoos in particular. <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> Bury them alive. Yeah, <laughs> there's, um, there's cockatoos where they'll take over a, a, a nesting cavity and there's already another species of cockatoo in there and they'll raise that as their own. And that means that that, that one... The one that the babies from that species A grow up thinking that they're species B, and uh, and even if they're corellas, it's the uh, long-billed corella, and I can't remember the name of the other one, the blue blue-faced corella or something. But they grow up thinking that they should like be hanging out with the other one, and they even try because they're different body shapes and different wing loads and so on. They can't fly in the same way, but they try and fly like the members of the species they think they are by like, doing a different kind of like wing beat. Really cool. So um. And this is this has happened with quite a lot of things. So um, yes, I think I think that if the parental stimulus is in place, and particularly if the 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 uh, the animal is in the parental stage, so it's like you know, you can sort of imagine someone as kind of like there's, there's kind of like a switch. It's like you know, don't eat the little things, look after them, or be nice to little fluffy animals. If that, if they're in that particular way of thinking, then uh, they will indeed. Um, take on members of other species, yeah, and look after, yeah, yeah. So, so e empathy, the and and um, um, altruism, all these things that people have somehow equated with religious belief and humanity. It's like shades of grey. They're all things that are definitely present in nature and different kinds of 
you know, what, what, what sure I was going to cover this, you know, I said this before, I mean, but what, what we do, what humans do isn't, 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 take another drink, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Answered that. Hey. We agree. I mean, in that particular case, I guess, with the, um, with the birds, it's just not clear what's happening, right? But that's all. That was your point. That there were alternative explanations for that series of photos, rather than that yeah. they were coming to a baby's bird. Uh, sorry, a baby of another species. They were coming to. We would. Yeah, we we said it could be. It could be altruistic, but it could also be normal response to a stimulus, the, the mobbing yeah. stimulus, where they see a predator and they want it out. Yeah. But um, but but yeah, but the the idea that they may be inspired to look after a baby they may want to look after it, care for a baby because they know it's a baby i'll say that's plausible as well right answered how's that for a slice of fried gold Clink. <laughs> what's that from you know when we were making the video i said we want it to be like this and showed you that bit from sean of the dead ah okay sean of the dead yeah, that's something we should need to discuss isn't it but i don't think we have time this time no, we don't. No, I think we should wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should do Shaun of the Dead as a film. I think we should we should discuss that. We should warn people this episode so they can go and watch it. What do you say? Oh, Shaun of the Dead next well, time? Shaun of the Dead, well, what about we just watched The World's End? I mean, I've only seen that once. Can't yeah, and I don't think we want to go yeah. backwards. So we should no. start with Shaun of the Dead. Okay. All right, wrap up. Who are you? Right. Oh, um, uh, um, I tweet at, so my name's Darren Nash, I run a little blog called Tetrapods of Orgy, it's currently hosted by Scientific American, I tweet at, I saw, I saw a city in the clouds, friends are up here, <laughs> they're in pain, but it's the future you see, at TetZoo, um, there's a Tetrapods Audi Facebook page. You should, if you're interested in any of the kind of stuff we talk about, you should buy the book Tetrapods Audi Book One, which is still available. Good digital retailers, bad ones as well. John and myself and our good friend Memo Kozman published a book called All Yesterday. It's still selling really, really well, right? Yep. Millionaires we are, Darren. Millionaires. And we also published a book called The Cryptozoological One. Volume one, volume two, coming out, I don't know, sometime soon. I haven't forgotten it, don't worry. Um, there's some really funny new reviews of Cryptozoological on Amazon. Very, very good. <laughs> funny. Um, and that is, uh, I think, about it for me. Okay. So, podcast, you go to tetzu.com where you can find links to our shop so you can buy t-shirts tell people about the new tape here t-shirts yeah tape ears that sort of stuff all sorts of hilarious in jokes um well one <laughs> <laughs> there'll be more in time. there will be more there will be more um i'm at johnconway.co where you can find links to my twitter and my facebooks um Oh, the donations thing. We need to nag people about donations. Yes, we do. Um, so thanks to all the people that have donated. 
That's that's really good. Makes the show worth doing. Carry on talking. Um, I just got let let the dog out. Hold on. See, I can't talk without you there. It doesn't work. I'm just sitting here talking to myself. Uh, you were talking about money. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, donations. So, yeah, thanks to all the people that donated, um, <gasps> especially recurring donations. Have you got something to say? I just forgot to read all the Facebook shout-outs. Yeah, we don't have time for that. Okay. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. Um, okay, so what I'm saying about recurring donations. I think I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here and say how many we've got. How about that? Go on. So we've got 2,000 listeners, right? Right. A little bit over that. We've got 22 people who donate recurringly. Well, it's better than nothing. <laughs> could be more, though. It could be more. <laughs> so, please, if you like the show and you listen regularly, I mean, a recurring donation of, like, a pound or a dollar a month or whatever, you'll never miss that. That's great for us. And it's like, it's like 50 cents or 50p an episode. It's crazy cheap for the amount <laughs> long droning episodes of Darren uh, going on and on and on and on. Only fifty uh, yeah. p. Only fifty p. And any and all profits do go entirely <laughs> to the to the generation of more Tetsu podcast. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make that gesture while I'm talking. Um, <laughs> The any money goes directly to the maintenance and the more of the pots the, the Tetsu vodka. Drink <laughs> <laughs> more vodka. Yes. Um, um, yeah. No, well, well, realistically, the money does go to supporting you doing research and me doing art and us making the podcast. That's what it does. So that's that's if you like that stuff, then yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's enough yeah. nagging of the people. All right. Yeah. Um, I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Kate Bush is in concert. I want to go and see Kate Bush. But the problem is... <laughs> no, oh, no, 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 no. Donate to the podcast. No. Get Darren to Kate Bush. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm going to stop recording now. Yeah. Oh, no, don't stop recording because I wanted to do a little song. <laughs>